But had you bought four years ago with 5% down, you know, the amount that you paid out in PMI is significantly less than what your home would have appreciated to. That same house that might have been $600,000 three and a half, four years ago, down to seven hundred and fifty. That's the big loss. That $150,000 is way bigger than what you would have paid out in PMI had you bought back when that same house was $600,000. This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Penn, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today, we have Chris Mason. Chris is a mortgage broker based in Oakland. And in this episode, Chris will tell us everything that we need to know about getting a loan for your first property. We cover a lot in this episode, so be sure to check out the notes on our website, everythingrei.com slash podcast. If you're new to this podcast, subscribe to the show and leave a review. We release episodes every Wednesday and Sunday and release the show notes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. By the way, if you need help financing your next real estate project, check out Conventus Lending. Conventus is the best hard money lender with amazing rates and incredible service. I've used them for years and they've always been incredibly easy to work with. If you need a hard money loan, contact me at sean at everythingrei.com to get $1,000 off of your processing fee. And if you want to know the secrets of how investors in the Bay Area are making huge profits in one of the most expensive markets in the world, download the free Ultimate Bay Area Investing Handbook on our website, everythingrei.com. Enjoy. All right, Chris, thanks so much for being on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know who you are and tell us what you do. Sure. My name is Chris Mason. I'm an independent mortgage broker in the Bay Area serving all of California. Very cool. And Chris, I also noticed you're very popular on Bigger Pockets. Do you want to talk about your Bigger Pockets contributions? Uh, yeah, sure. So back when I first started in the mortgage industry, I just I very quickly found there was an underserved niche or an underserved community for landlords and landlord loans. I had an uncle once tell me that if you want to be successful in any industry, find out what everyone else in that industry sucks at and get really good at that thing and you'll become invaluable. Mm-hmm. And so what was that? Um, that was landlord loans. Real estate investors were having a hard time. They were being, you know, as I'm sure you're aware, a lot of landlords have a hard time getting 30-year fixed Fannie Mae good interest rate type loans. So I spe- started specializing in doing that sort of stuff. Right. And you wanted to go ahead and elaborate more about like, you know, landlord loans, how they differ from, you know, residential like loans that I'm going to get if I'm going to live in the property myself. Sure. So the bulk of my business has always been the residential loans for owner occupants, first time home buyer type people buying houses to live in. The landlord loans, that segment, there's a lot. So our pre-licensing education doesn't cover anything to do with rental income or landlord loans or anything else. It's all on the job training and on the job research and reading the guidelines yourself. So you can go an entire successful 20 year career as a mortgage loan originator and not know anything about landlord loans or real estate investing or, or how that stuff works. And people do. And it's not a knock on them. It's just they decided not to specialize in that. You know, for example, I've decided I'm not going to specialize in reverse mortgages for the elderly. Um, it's just a, a choice that I've made. So we're going to go more into that in probably another episode. But for now, let's talk more about uh, loans for first-time home buyers. Do you want to just go over just like how the whole process works and how you know? I've heard it's been very difficult to get a loan. Is that true or is that not? It depends. I mean, some people it sales through and they barely know I exist and they barely remember my name because it just went so smooth and it closed in you know two weeks, two and a half weeks or whatever. And then other people, it is a real struggle. The Fannie Mae guidelines and the Freddie Mac guidelines and the FHA guidelines and all that are one size fits all. And you might think they're common sense or rational, but they're not. A helpful story to highlight that. So if you're like a, let's say you're a trauma surgeon at the hospital, you're probably gonna remember the first 10 lives you saved and the first 10 people that died on you. And you're probably gonna remember the most recent 10 lives you saved and the most recent 10 people that died on you. In a very similar vein, I have very clear memories of like the very first dozen or two people I put in the houses and didn't. So one of those was a doctor who did not become a homeowner and the other was a formerly incarcerated car thief who did become a homeowner. 
Um, and that story kind of highlights how the guidelines sometimes don't make sense and how you shouldn't assume you can do it without at least giving it a shot. The deal with the doctor is he had a, you know, a three-year contract guaranteeing him $20,000 a month if he just stayed alive and kept having a pulse. So I mean, it, for all intents and purposes, it was very much salary-like. But his company, his employer, was not located in the United States and didn't want to establish payroll and HR and W-2 people just for their three employees in the country that were going around selling this medical stuff. Um, so they 1099 him. And as a consequence of that, he was considered self-employed, even though it didn't really make sense. And because of that, he had done the job less than two years, so he could not get a mortgage and buy a house because he was, quote unquote, self-employed, even though he had a contract, rock solid in writing, 20 grand a month. And so that's an example of one where you would think it would be fine, but he actually couldn't move forward. The car thief one, he had just gotten out of prison not too long ago while he was in prison. I'm not going to tell you anything about what he had done to get himself into trouble, but it involved stealing cars, obviously. And he built a business up, an illegal business involving chop shops and a network of car thieves below him, believe it or not. He told me all that voluntarily. It's not relevant to his creditworthiness. I didn't ask him, but he just told me his life story. But anyways, while he was inside, he like started talking to white collar criminals and realized that you didn't have to break the law to be successful as an entrepreneur. You could do things lawfully. So he eventually got out and started a, I don't want to disclose his exact profession, but it's something in your house that if it breaks, you want to fix right away. So he became a that, and now he's got like a you know a fleet of trucks and he's got employees under him and he's doing phenomenal. And then he, that's an example of where he was able to successfully become a homeowner. And that's where you learn that the guidelines and the rules are not necessarily logical and the people that can get into a house aren't necessarily who you think. And the people that have problems getting into a house are not necessarily people that you would expect on that side either. Does that make sense? Yeah. And who's the one that determines those rules? Right now. So FHA loans have always been government loans. Um, VA loans have always been government loans. Since the crash, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac have been under a federal conservatorship. So those four categories right there comprise about 90% of the mortgage market. And then all four of them are ultimately controlled directly or indirectly by the federal government. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, for those who don't understand, do you want to just break down how those entities exist and you know why they set those guidelines the way they are? Sure. So back during the Great Recession, the guy, the president was named FDR. And as part of the FDR's New Deal, he created Fannie Mae. So it was a private corporation created by the government to create a secondary liquid market for mortgages. That way, your local regional bank could lend you the money to help you buy a house. And then the problem they had before Fannie Mae existed was now they don't have that money to lend to the next family. So what do you do? Well, now that Fannie Mae exists, you sell that mortgage to Fannie Mae on the secondary market and get your however much money back. And now you have that money available again to lend to the next family. So that's the basic function of the secondary market and the GSEs, the government-sponsored enterprises. In the 70s, Freddie Mac was also created by the government to compete with Fannie Mae because a lot of people didn't like the idea of this private sector entity not having direct competition. Yeah. So, I mean, basically, long story short, these entities exist because, again, like you said, they need to sell these loans back to the secondary market, right? So they have more money to then give out more loans to originate. The next step, that's correct. Exactly. And these banks can't originate loans that are outside of these parameters because if they're outside the parameters, then Fannie, then Fannie Mae won't buy the loans from them on the secondary market. Yeah, they call it a non-saleable loan. And if you have a non-saleable loan that's $500,000, you now have a $500,000 problem because it might take you 10 or 15 years to collect enough principal and interest payments to get you back your $500,000. Um, you do enough of those, you go out of business. Yeah. How do jumbo loans work? Are they also backed by you know Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac? Jumbo loans are not backed by Freddie Mae and, or Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Jumbo loans are backed by the big banks having a desire to cross-sell you other financial goods and services. That's the only reason they do those loans. Does that make sense? Kind of, but do you want to go more into it? Sure. So typically a jumbo loan is a jumbo loan because it is above the Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac conforming or conforming high balance loan limit for that county, which means Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac basically say, we don't care if you follow the rules. We're not going to buy this loan because our rule is going to say the maximum loan limit for that county 
in eight of the nine barrier counties, it's $765,000. In most of the country, it's $510,000. But loans over that, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac won't buy it. So it's a jumbo loan is what they call it. And it's just underwritten according to that bank's internal own guidelines. I mean, usually what those guidelines amount to is, are you worthy of cross-selling? And if you're not, we're not going to do your loan. And if you are, then we will do your loan in the hopes of cross-selling your other financial products, car loans, retirement account, that sort of thing. So basically, they're hoping that if you have a crazy huge loan with, let's say, Wells Fargo or Chase, then eventually you're going to come back to them for a car loan or for some other product. Correct. And sometimes they'll incentivize you to be like, hey, we'll reduce your interest rate a little bit if you also move your $300,000 rollover IRA to Wells Fargo or whatever the big bank may be. Mm, I see. Interesting. Okay. Now, you were mentioning before how the uh, like car thief was able to uh, get a loan, even though he didn't have, well, I guess he had a bad record, but he had a W-2 salary from his own company. Is that right? He was self-employed. He'd been self-employed for several years. He reported his income honestly to the IRS. Turns out when you go to prison, you learn not to break the rules because breaking the rules have bad, has bad consequences. So I've done a few formerly incarcerated person loans. And they're always very honest and forthright, at least in my experience, in everything they do, because they already learned the lesson. They don't want to screw around. They don't want anyone watch, you know, auditing them. They don't want the IRS coming after them. So lo and behold, that self-employed person does their taxes honestly, reports all the income of the IRS, pays taxes on it. And while the GSEs, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, are under government conservatorship, you better bet that the entities under federal conservatorship are going to look to the tax code for definitions of what things mean, such as income. Does that make sense? Yeah. And you said the doctor couldn't qualify, but is that because he's just too new on the job? In his case, so both of those people were self-employed. The doctor had been self-employed for only about six months. The general requirement, as, as I'm sure everyone is already aware, 90% of new enterprises fail within that first two years. So they want to see that you're after that two-year period of 90% failure. In his case, you'd think he's got a contract with rock solid. It says 20 grand a month. He's not self-employed. But the IRS tax code is what the fan, is what the GSEs defer to. And the tax code says that IRS Form 1099 is more or less for independent contractors, which means he is self-employed according to the tax code and thus self-employed according to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac as well. So if you're like a self-employed person, like a real estate investor or a real estate agent, basically don't try to buy your own property before you've been in the business for over two years. Otherwise, you probably can't get a loan. More or less. Yeah. Don't assume it's going to be two-year average. We're seeing more and more cases where we just use the most recent year tax returns. So what that means is that you know your first year as self-employed, your first year as a widget business, you manufacture widgets and you sell widgets, whatever. They're still going to want the business to be two years old, but they might do the income calculation based off only the most recent tax year, knowing that new businesses almost always show a loss in year one, but that is not necessarily reflective of the reality of that business. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're seeing more and more cases for self-employed people with you know good credit, this and that where the automated underwriting system is only asking for the most recent one year of tax returns, but you still have to prove the business existed for two years, but the income calculation is only done on the most recent one year. The reason that's important is because when you are self-employed and you have that breakout year and you make six figures for the first time ever, pretty soon you're going to feel like, well, dang, I should go buy a house because we're we're feeling we have a down payment because we had a good year and we have the income because we had a good year. So let's go buy a house. And what often happens is there's a little bit of a delay because first April has to roll around and you have to file your taxes and then Fannie Mae can see and understand that income based on those tax returns. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. And I know like W-2 seems like the, the golden child, right? Like if you have a W-2, then you're good to go for the loan. But I also know there's some problems if you recently got a new job or changed jobs. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. So first I'm going to talk about W-2 is the golden ticket because some people hear that and they're like, aha, I'm self-employed. I can just give myself a W-2. And they think they're freaking geniuses and they give themselves a, w- a W-2 that's $250,000 a year. 
but then the underwriters actually they're going to realize you're self-employed and it's not going to be underwritten any differently so w2 is the golden ticket asterisk unless you're self-employed still no golden ticket there still still two years in business w2 salary to w2 salary ballpark roughly speaking in the same line of work you're fine you're good to go that salary can be counted 100 percent of value right away that is another one where it's a little bit of an underserved community. So a lot of people that do that, a lot of people that are in the Bay Area working for tech startups, they change jobs every six to 12 months. And the big banks will say no, but then we can find a solution to work with them and find a way to say yes. I see. How does that work? Well, I mean, how that works is the basic Fannie Mae rule say that W2 to W2, more or less, you're good to go right away. But individual lenders and banks and credit unions, et cetera, they are free to be more restrictive than those basic requirements. And often they are. Often they might require that you be on the same job for... Uh, more than six months, or if there's a pay increase of more than 20%, they do a two-year average and don't count that pay, this, that, and the other. So an individual institution is allowed to be more restrictive, but not less restrictive. And then I'm an independent mortgage broker, so we're plugged into 37 different lenders and banks, I think. So someone will do it, right? Does that make sense? Okay, got it. Yep, makes sense. Basically, the problem I think most people have is they go to one lender or two lenders and they say no, and then they think that's the end of the world. But in reality, someone will do it. Yeah. And the reality furthermore is that if you walk onto a Ford dealership and ask for a very specific car that does not exist in the Ford inventory, the Ford dealership is not going to tell you, Hey, there's a Subaru across the street. You should go there. They're going to say that car doesn't exist. Would you, would you like to look at this other Ford motor vehicle instead? Right. Mm -hmm. That's what happens. Got it. Do you want to talk about what DTI is and what are the typical requirements? Sure. So your DTI is your debt to income ratio. It is more or less the sum total of all of your liabilities, the minimum payments, not the actual payments you make. So if you have a credit card that you pay off in full every month, they're not going to look at that. They're going to look at the minimum payment, which is maybe $25 or $37 or whatever. I mean, add all that up, add up the principal interest, taxes, insurance, and homeowners association dues for the house you're buying. Add all that up and divide it by your gross monthly pre-tax income. And that's your debt to income ratio. And what are those, like, what are some popular thresholds that people need to watch out for? Sure. So for those jumbo loans you mentioned earlier, 43% is hard and fast by law. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, you can usually go up into the high 40s. Um, in theory, you can go to 49.9. In practice, you pre-approve at 47 or so to give yourself wiggle room in case the homeowner's insurance comes in a little high, in case the property taxes come in a little high because there's some Melarus assessment or something, this, that, and the other. FHA, you can go up into the mid-50s, but that's usually ill-advised because that means, let's do some basic math here. If your debt-to-income ratio is 55%, that means you make, let's say you make $100. 25 goes towards taxes. You're left with 75. 55 goes towards the mortgage. 75 minus 55, what's that, 20? So they got, you know, 20% of your income left to spend on things like food and other stuff. So it, you can do it. It's not generally advised. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. A fun fact on DTI that usually surprises people is those car payments are the home ownership killers. That's what gets you. A $400 a month car payment is going to reduce your buying power by itself by eighty dollars to $100,000. Wow. So basically don't get your car payment. <laughs> Just be aware of that. What's more important to you, this $30,000 car or that next $100,000 in house? It depends on what price point you're at. That eighty dollars to $100,000, if, that, if that's the difference between a $300,000 house and a $400,000 house, that's freaking huge. Other people, whether it's an $800,000 house or $750,000 house, not, not too much of a big deal there. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And also if you have like student loans, that, that impacts your DTI as well, doesn't it? Yeah, student loans do impact your DTI. The rules are kind of weird if they're in deferment or in forbearance. Pragmatically, for whatever reason, we actually don't see a lot of that. Most people have the sense that you should pay your student loans off before you buy a house. I don't necessarily agree with that, but no one listens to me. So, <laughs> so we actually don't see a lot of people with active student loans applying for mortgages. You can. There's no, there's no rule against it, but people don't do it. Hmm, interesting. And when does PMI kick in? Sure. So if you're putting less than 20% down in some, some form or another, there will be mortgage insurance. Occasionally, you see marketing that says no PMI, and then you look at the interest rate, and oh, look, they're just baking the PMI into the interest rate. But there is always some form of PMI. PMI stands for private mortgage insurance. There are some common misconceptions about it. Usually, people 
talk about PMI as if it's a waste of money and it's not worth it and this, that, and the other. The thing to remember is that it's, it's insurance. PMI stands for private mortgage insurance. So what you got to think about is let's say you hear about someone who tells you car insurance is a waste of money. And then you find out that 19-year-old is driving a motorcycle and has a DUI on his record. So his motorcycle insurance is ridiculously expensive, and that's why he thinks it's a waste of money. Um, by contrast, someone who's a nice, safe driver, they're 35 years old, they've got a clean driving record, they drive an SUV, they don't even have a parking citation, their car insurance might be significantly less. And that's pretty important because you don't think of car insurance as on-off, yes, no. Very similar vein, you know, health insurance. Is health insurance a waste of money? Well, if you smoke and, you know, drink five cases of beer a night, you know, and, and that sort of stuff, yeah, it might be a waste of money because it's going to be so freaking expensive. And the way to think about this with insurance, with mortgage insurance specifically, is it p- plays out the same. 5% down, 640 FICO score, that person's monthly mortgage insurance bill is going to be in the range of 10 times as high as 15% down great credit. So in terms of PMI being a waste of money, it depends on who you are and how much risk threshold you have or how, how risky you are to the PMI insurance carrier. So it's not the case that it's necessarily always a waste of money. Another thing to consider for that hypothetical, uh, let's say someone's doing 10% down and they have pretty good credit. That mortgage insurance might come in at 0.5%. So to figure out the PMI payment, you just take 0.5% percent multiplied by the loan balance divided by 12 that's your monthly payment but they're paying out 0.5 percent right but what if that 0.5 percent lets them get into a house in a market that has been appreciating for six or seven percent is it worth paying out that 0.5 percent if it gets you a piece of that six or seven percent i would argue that yeah it probably is yeah absolutely yeah i mean i talk to people all the time that like you know hey i finally saved up my 20 percent and i talk to them like you know cool that's great that you had this much you know how long ago is it that you had a uh, you know five percent down saved and they tell me, oh, you know, three and a half, four years ago. And I'm like, okay, well, you, you know, I don't really tell people this because you don't want to rub it in their faces. But had you bought four years ago with 5% down, you know, the amount that you paid out in PMI is significantly less than what your home would have appreciated to. That's right. That same house that might have been $600,000 three and a half, four years ago, now it's seven hundred and fifty. That's the big loss. That $150,000 is way bigger than what you would have paid out in PMI had you bought back when that same house was $600,000. Hmm. That makes sense. I know a lot of your audience is not in the Bay Area or not in California, so I totally understand and respect that in the Midwest, it's a different story. Um, I don't have experience there, so I can't really comment on that. Mm-hmm. And in terms of you know purchasing properties with a lower than 20% down, is that common? Do people usually do that, though? That's the overwhelming majority of my first-time homebuyer clients. Overwhelming majority. I mean, the exception is when there's family help. Sometimes someone's just a really studious saver. That's pretty rare, but it does happen. And the other one is like a lucky IPO, like Lyft just, you know, if you work for Lyft or Facebook or one of these tech companies that has an IPO, you might become an overnight millionaire, in which case you call me and I tell you, hey, if you have $720 in a checking account, you actually don't need me, you should go be a cash buyer. But that's a different conversation. I don't think that's representative of your audience. Is that correct? Yeah. And are they typically using those FHA loans? Is that what they're using? I don't know what the breakdown is. Some people are using FHA 3.5% down. Some are using Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. FHA 3.5% down is pretty standard in the Fannie Mae world and Freddie Mac world. The PMI gets cheaper at thresholds of 5%, 10%, 15%. So usually if you can make it to the next one, your PMI is going to be cheaper. So that, that can make sense. You usually don't see people putting 13% down or 17% down because there is some benefit to being 3% less in debt or 2% less in debt, but it's not going to improve your interest rate or reduce the PMI rate unless you get all the way to the next 5% threshold. Does that make sense? Yeah. And does the PMI stay with you for the duration of the loan? One of the big differences, the big differences between FHA and conventional when it comes to PMI or comes to mortgage insurance, excuse me. And the reason I said excuse me is because FHA loans technically don't have PMI because they're not private mortgage insurance. It's government mortgage insurance. But one of the differences between FHA 3.5% down and the conventional options at 3, 5, 10, and 15 are that the conventional ones, the mortgage insurance drops off at some point once you have the equity. FHA loans, the mortgage insurance is there for the life of the loan. 
but we still do FHA because a nice thing about FHA mortgage insurance is it is not judgmental about FICO score. So if you have a 640 FICO score or an 840 FICO score with FHA, your mortgage insurance is going to be identical. Whereas conventional loans with private mortgage insurance, the private sector is much more judgmental about your FICO score. Hmm. And even though it says it's there for the duration of the loan, you can just refinance out whenever you want, can't you? Whenever the relevant combination of natural market appreciation, forced appreciation from you improving the house and you writing checks to make the payment whenever that gets you to 20% equity, yes. Yeah. Because I remember uh, one of my coworkers back when I was working at Boeing, he was talking about FHA and PMI and he's getting like worried, you know, he was like, oh man, I have to pay PMI forever. But I realized later that you can just refinance out and then it's not, you know, the end of the world. That's what most people do. The reality is it is very rare for someone to take out a 30-year FHA loan and actually make payments on that for 30 years and not refinance. That's very rare. Conventional loan, you might see it. In 2012, rates were phenomenally low. So if you bought a house and had mortgage insurance, you probably wouldn't want to refinance that to drop the PMI. You would probably want to do the appeal process to have the PMI drop based on your current equity. Hmm, that makes sense. And what kind of credit scores do you need to get a loan? I mean, you want like the rock bottom or what you should shoot for? Hmm, I mean, all of it. Okay. If you got 10% down and a 500 FICO score, FHA will go for it. 580, the options open up much more in FHA, and 640, the options open up in the conventional Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. 680 is where the financing starts to look good. Cool. So, and that's important because, like, let's say you find some phenomenal deal on some property. It's your friend who's willing to sell it to you for a loss, and you're like, well, dang, I got a 660 FICO score. Excuse me, let me go back. I raised that last part. I mean, that's important to keep. And one thing to keep in mind is that it's not just about the financing. Let's suppose that you stumble across an opportunity to buy a cousin or a friend's house for less than, than full market value. And you're like, well, dang, you know, my credit score is not where I want it to be before I bought a house. I'm only at 667 or something. That's not the end of the world if you're getting a great deal on a sticker price, right? Nice. If you're doing a FHA loan, are you allowed to use that to purchase investment properties? So all the low down payment options are for owner-occupied real estate only. So if you've got less than 15 to 25% down, those are only for owner-occupants. Gotcha. With the exception of second homes. Okay. So vacation homes and stuff like that, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. So whenever mortgage person says second home in your head, translate it into vacation home because that's what when mortgage people say second home, what they don't mean that you have a first house and buy a second one necessarily. You can have a second home before having a first home because when mortgage people say second home, what they really mean is vacation home. So in, in my area, that's Lake Tahoe. Yeah, makes sense. It's the ski cabin Lake Tahoe. That's the, the place in um, Joshua Tree, stuff like that. Yeah. And if you're purchasing an investment property, I know it does impact your DTI significantly. So, but I do also know that your rents can count towards your DTI, right? So do you need seasoning for that or how does that whole process work? No, so, so the way that works, and this is part of what I mentioned earlier that I found that real estate investors were an underserved community. The way that works is you don't have to have landlord experience with the exception of VA loans. Um, you don't have to have landlord experience or anything. And if it's a multi-unit property, they will count rent from the other units at 75% of its gross value to account for vacancy, capex, et cetera, et cetera. That is when you're buying a house. If you are refinancing a house because you already bought one and it's a multifamily and all this and all that, on refinances, they want to see what appeared on your tax returns typically, except in scenarios where you bought the property too recently to, for the rental income to have conceivably appeared on tax returns. Got it. So basically, if you're buying a property, you can use whatever is being rented it for. 75% of that counts towards your income for your DTI calculation. Yeah, and it's not going to move the needle as much as you might think because the debt-to-income ratio has still got to be under 50%, which means $500 a month doesn't mean your mortgage payment can be $500. Excuse me, $500 a month in rent that you're collecting does not mean your mortgage payment can be $500 more. $500 more in rent means your mortgage payment can be about $250 more 
because that's where it would be 50% DTI. It's got to be less than that. So plan on that rental income moving the needle a little bit, but not a huge amount. So it might get you from five to 575, but it's not going to get you from 500,000 to 800,000, which is what people oftentimes expect. Yeah. And when it comes down to the, you know, the maximum loan amounts for uh, Fannie Mae loans, is it the amount that you could purchase, you know, 760 is the amount you can have the best you can buy the property for, or is that the max amount that Freddie Mae, Fannie Mae will loan you? Sure. So good question. So this comes up uh, not infrequently where we get someone's paperwork, pre-approve them. Let's just pick a number, say $700,000. So someone's pre-approved for $700,000 with 5% down, and then their family catches wind of this. And then all of a sudden it's, you know, hey, you know, Chris, my mom, now that she found out I was looking for a house, turns out she stashed away $100,000 for me. So now I can buy an $800,000 house, right? Because $700,000 is what I was pre-approved for. And you add $100,000 to that and you get to 800000 right? Um, so that comes up all the time. And the answer is not necessarily because your property taxes in the state of California are determined by your sales price. So even if the mortgage amount doesn't change, the fact that it's a higher purchase price means the property taxes are going to be higher. So it's not going to be a one-to-one dollar-for-dollar thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, your PITI is higher. Because the property taxes are higher because your sales price is higher. Exactly. Uh, I'm talking more in terms of, because you know how you said the maximum for a Fannie Mae loan is like, or uh, sorry, it was FHA. It was like seven hundred and sixty or so thousand dollars. In eight of the nine Bay Area counties, it's seven hundred and sixty-five thousand six hundred dollars for both single-family, for both conventional, and for FHA. Yeah. So in that case, would that be okay? Because your loan amount would be the same, but now you're just putting up more down payment. Yes, that is correct. Okay. Gotcha. The maximum conforming loan limit for your area changes every single year. So if someone's listening to this podcast in the future, it's going to be a different number. But whatever that number is, if you want to back into the sales price with a given down payment, let's say you got 10% down and you're stuck at 765, 600, because that's the limit. If you just do 765, 600 divided by 0.9, that'll get you the sales price that works out to being, you know, 10% down will get you that loan amount. You're just doing the math backwards. Exactly. And I've heard that interest rates have dropped significantly in the past couple of months. Do you want to tell us, you know, kind of what are the rates going on right now? Sure. So for the typical FHA 3.5% down first-time buyer, it's actually down below 3% right now, which is pretty unprecedented. Other than FHA, it's in the mid to low threes, depending on the scenario, assuming good credit, this, that, and the other. Uh, for people that are existing homeowners, almost everyone needs to be refinancing right now. That's the reality there. There's never been a better... 2012 was about the same, but interest rates are ridiculously good right now. Mm-hmm. And what are points? You have the option when you are buying a house and getting a mortgage, let's say, let's say prevailing market rates for whatever scenario are 3.5%. And let's say you're like, that ain't good enough. I want 3.25%. So whatever bank's willing to do 3.5% by default, they will also offer you 3.25% if you're willing to pay more in upfront fees. Effectively, it's prepaid interest. The general conversion ratio is one point, which is 1% of your loan amount and fees will get you one quarter off of your rate. And have you found that one is better than the other? Like, is it worth it to pay those points? So it's actually a property specific question because here's the thing. When, you're first, when you first start house hunting, you don't know which house you're going to fall in love with. What if the house you fall in love with has a really beat up kitchen and you know your life's not going to be good until you fix that kitchen up and make it what your spouse or you would deem acceptable? In that case, my suggestion would be don't buy the rate down, stay liquid so you have the money to fix up that kitchen. Does that make sense? My contrast and different scenario would be it's a turnkey house. It's in great condition. We don't need to fix anything and we aren't short on liquidity. We have plenty of saved up in our emergency fund. In that case it can make sense. The break-even point will typically be in around five years. So if you know you're going to be in that house for five years, then it can make sense. Then by break-even point, the way I'm defining that is I'm not including opportunity cost. All I'm including is how long does it take for the monthly savings to add up to that one-time upfront investment in the lower interest rate. 
Hmm. You know, going back to the points, going back to the cost of the loan right now, you said that, you know, it's a really good time to refinance. What, what interest rate should someone have right now on their, you know, long-term property that you think is worth it for them to, you know, give you a call or something to refinance their property? For owner-occupied real estate, if the rate starts with four and your FICO does not start with a five or a six, you should probably refinance. Hmm. So if the rate starts with four and your FICO does not start with a five or a six. Gotcha. Otherwise, it may not be worth it because you still have to pay for some closing costs, right? Yeah, I mean, there are always closing costs. If you're gonna if you're gonna lower your interest rate and save twenty bucks a month, it's not worth it. It's not worth the hassle. It's not worth the closing costs. It's not worth the fact that you probably roll those closing costs into your loan balance after seeing an advertisement for something being no closing costs out of pocket, quote unquote. Um, it's not worth it. Yeah, and you're also stretching out your your loan again, right? You're going back and resetting the clock on a thirty year fixed. So that one's actually a pretty good point. Not everyone realizes this. There is no rule that says mortgages have to be in the 15-year or 30-year fixed variety. You can actually do all sorts of things in between. So we started one last week where the guy was like, hey, I'm three years into this. And if I reset to year zero 30, then I just wasted three years of payments. That doesn't make sense. What do you think, Chris? And I said, well, it's to 27-year fixed. There you go. Well, you could do that. Yeah, you can do that. That's cool. I didn't know you could do that. Wait, so who actually does those loans? It's like connection you have or credit union? It's not just something Chris Mason has. Like, I appreciate you trying to give me that claim of exclusivity, but no, a variety of different wholesale banks that most independent mortgage brokers are plugged into will be able to offer you those. Sometimes they call it off-year loans. Sometimes they call it flex term. The name they give it doesn't matter. You can just say, hey, I wanted a 27-year fix. You got that? And the answer is going to be yes or no. Wow, that's cool. I learned something really new today. And actually something, something else interesting. Traditionally, you had to go all the way down to a 15-year fix to get any rate savings, which is why everyone thought it was only 15 and 30. They didn't know there was anything in between because no one ever did 25 or 23 or 27 or 20 because you wouldn't get any better on the rate. That's that's what a lot of people think. Some banks have actually started coming out now with rate advantages starting at a 20-year fix. So the 27-year fix is going to have the same interest rate as a 30-year fix. The 20-year fix is where you're going to start seeing lenders and banks start off at better pricing. Traditionally, you had to go all the way down to 15. Hmm, very cool. When it comes to you know buying an investment property, it's obviously not going to be as cheap as if it's a owner-occupied loan. What is the uh, difference in uh, those two? Because this podcast was going to be focused on the owner-occupants, before answering that question directly, I'm going to make those owner-occupants, those first-time homebuyers aware of something else. When you get an owner-occupied loan, you make a promise at the closing table before a notary public who's going to take your fingerprints. And your promise is that you intend to owner-occupy that property for one year, but it's not a 30-year promise. It's a one-year promise. So I have clients that are on a it's not a get rich quick strategy. It's a get rich slowly over time strategy, but all they do is every 12 months in a week, they give me a call to buy their next house, owner occupied, single family, 5% down, converting the last one to a rental. So that is something you can do if you want. And that's without going to non-owner occupied financing. In terms of your question that you asked about the non-owner occupied financing for pure investment properties, I think we should kick that can down the road to the next podcast episode that we're going to do that's focused on that. Is that fair? That sounds good. Uh, What about like say a source of down payments? Are you allowed to have gifts as a source of down payment? Sure. So for owner-occupied real estate, yes, you can absolutely get get a gift from a family member to use as the down payment, closing costs, everything else. Um, for most loan programs in the Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, FHA world, it can be the entirety of your down payment, cash to close, and closing costs. Mm-hmm. Cool. And uh, can someone else be on title with you? Yeah. Uh, this is kind of a strange question. So like if, I don't know, I guess like a family member is helping you out on, on a gift. Yeah. Totally fine. Even if they bought a property recently? Make sure you identify that with your mortgage loan originator early in the process. Don't call me the day before docs are going to title and tell me you want your mom on title. It's a little late in the game. Does that make sense? Got it. Yeah. And even if they purchased a property recently, are they still able to get, like, say you're getting an FHA loan. Supposedly you need that, you know, what, two years? You can have purchased a property in the past two years. 
and uh, the person on title that's with you has also bought a property like a year ago. Is that okay? Official loans are not just for first-time home buyers, so that's fine. In itself, the fact that someone has an ownership interest in other real estate does not disqualify you from FHA 3.5% down or the conventional 5% down option, which is why that person I was telling you about can buy a new house 5% down every single year. She's obviously not a first-time home buyer, right? Hmm. Oh, that's good to know. I thought there was always going to be this like two-year gap between properties that you can purchase using an FHA loan. So it's problematic if you try to have multiple FHA loans at once. It's also problematic if you are buying another property and you need to count the rental income from your last property to use FHA. Those two things are problematic. But if you bought a house two years ago and the equity is there, so you're financed out of FHA into conventional, now you do not have an FHA loan. So now you can get an FHA loan if you want. Except for very rare circumstances, basically everyone only gets one FHA loan at a time. Cool. And can you describe you know, what you do as a broker and why would someone use a broker if they can go direct to a bank like Wells Fargo or Chase? Sure. So I was I was a mortgage banker at one of the big mortgage companies for a couple of big mortgage companies for five years. I made the switch in 2018, or well, in 2018 the market switched and mortgage brokers started to get a rate advantage. So I made the switch myself in early 2019. So we do enjoy a not a huge rate advantage, but we'll generally beat out the retail competition. Um, I, you know, I just switched teams a year and a half ago. I didn't do that for no reason. We also have multiple offers. I told you earlier that if you walk into the Ford dealership and you start describing a car that does not exist in Ford's inventory, they're not going to tell you that you can go somewhere else. They're just going to tell you it doesn't exist. As an independent mortgage broker, we can plug into multiple different lenders. And if one lender won't do it, it's no skin off our back. It's no skin off of our back to use a different lender. And we also do the comparison shopping in terms of everything else. About one in three of my clients thinks they're a genius and they figure out they're just going to cut out the middleman and call the lender directly. That seemed like a reasonable thing someone might try to do. And then they're often surprised that when you call the bank directly, it's actually a higher interest rate than if you work through a mortgage broker. The reason for that is because we get wholesale volume-based discounts. The typical American consumer gets between zero and one mortgages every five to seven years. That I might do that in a week. So guess who gets the volume discount? Hmm, exactly. Yeah, so that's pretty cool. So you guys actually are cheaper and you have more variety. Yeah. Yeah, very nice. What we don't have is uh, 401ks or health insurance. Very nice. Nothing's free. Yeah. Do you want to talk about the appraisal process as well as what, what is underwriting and how can underwriters be potentially disastrous for a, a loan? Sure. So we'll do the underwriting portion first. That word underwriter is a term that many first-time homebuyers have never heard before. And oftentimes it is useful to think of the historical etymology behind a word to understand where it came from and the context behind it. Um, like many things, this starts with the British Empire. So the British Empire had big ships with lots of cargo that were sailing all over the world. And sometimes they would sink and the owner of that ship would be screwed. So someone invented insurance, right? And so what they would do is the insurance agent would basically go aboard your cargo ship and verify that you have 100 barrels of rum and look at how many crewmen you have and whether or not they are drunk or whether or not they're sober and the quality of the ship. And there's you know this, that, and the other with the sails. And they would describe that on the top half of the page. And then the ship with its barrels of rum or whatever would be appraised by an independent appraiser who would also make notes and all that. And they would give all that to the person who became known as an underwriter. And the reason they became known as an underwriter is because they would make notes on the bottom half of the page. So underwriters basically take information they are given, they look at, they confirm to the extent that they can that it's all accurate and true, and they sign off and say, this is good to go, this makes sense, we can do this. Oftentimes when you submit something you're underwriting, almost every single time, they, and underwriters are humans, so they're going to justify their existence. So even if you submit a perfect file, they're usually going to condition for something and find something to ask you for in addition to what you provided. In a perfect escrow process, you submit to underwriting, you get the approval back, it's got one or two conditions, you know, give me updated pay stubs and give me an updated bank statement for this account, you send those back, they sign off on it, you're clear to close. Docs go to title, you sign, and congratulations, you're a homeowner. Nice. I remember when I had my first property, 
I was buying it. And then at the very like maybe last week, the underwriter said they don't like the loan and canceled it. And I was pissed because I thought we were good the whole time. That was my first time hearing about what an underwriter was. And I was like, oh. Yeah, not, not to get too much into the weeds about your specific scenario, but do you know why they denied it or what the, what the deal was? Yeah, something crazy. Well, it was just that like, I, I guess my mom was living in this property and I was saying, oh, she would like just continue to live here. And I guess they didn't like that. She was going to be a, you know, quote unquote tenant. It made no sense to me. I was like, I'm buying this house. Like it's a really good deal of equity in here, but they didn't like that. The past owner was living in the property. So, and the past owner is your mom. Yeah. And presumably your mom would have had trouble qualifying for that mortgage on her own. Hence she called you to begin with. Is that a correct assumption? Could be. Okay. When was this? Five years ago. Five years ago? Okay. I just Google searched Fannie Mae types of occupancy, and I'm going to read something very interesting to you that you're going to find really interesting given that you had a loan denied. Remember we talked earlier about how banks can be more restrictive than Fannie Mae? Yeah. So I'm going to read you a guideline here. Principal residence properties. A principal residence is a property that the borrower occupies as his or her primary residence. The following table describes conditions under which Fannie Mae considers a residence to be a principal residence, even though the borrower will not be occupying the property. Does that sound like your scenario at all? That's right. Okay. Third bullet point down, children wanting to provide housing for parents. Does that sound like you? Mm. If the parent is unable to work or does not have sufficient income to qualify for a mortgage on her or his own, the child is considered the owner-occupant. So that one should have gone through. That's an example of one where the specific lender you're working with had an internal rule that was more restrictive than Fannie Mae's, which caused the loan denial. That's an example of where a mortgage broker would have been able to save the day and just switch lenders or ideally identify that front and not have sent it to that lender to begin with. Does that make sense? And that's what we did. So eventually we stopped working with that bank. We got a mortgage lender, or we got a mortgage broker in and then they, we got it done. Yeah. So we don't like being captain save the deal. We don't like having to come at the 11th hour, but that's always an option you have if you think something funky like that is going on. Um, and to the audience, I swear to God, we did not engineer that. It genuinely told me that scenario and I'd never heard it before now. And I genuinely did just Google search Fannie Mae types of occupancy and bring up the first Google search result. Yeah. Very interesting. I was wondering what's the timeline for a uh, first time home buyer properties to get their loans closed? So it depends. Um, usually we're closing most of them right now in two and a half to four weeks. And what do you think is like the longest part of the whole process? Part of it is, is oftentimes waiting for the paperwork from the borrower. Since I made the switch to become an independent mortgage broker, now that I have those choices, I try and stick to lenders that have a really attractive combination of good pricing, good rates, good fees, and fast turn times. Because I, I just know I've done this enough that that first time home buyer, when they're waiting on word from underwriting, they're nervous and they're nervous and they're scared and all that. So the shorter you can make that period of time, the better. The other big thing that we end up waiting a long time for is the appraisal. Right now, a lot of people are refinancing and those are the same appraisers that help you on purchase mortgages. So appraisals right now are running relatively slow. Call it week and a half, two weeks. Cool. So the way it works is you get a loan, you have to send in your paperwork. And at the same time, you guys call an appraiser. The appraiser goes in and they're an independent company, right? They go in and then they check the property, make sure the value is where it's supposed to be. And then they send it to the underwriting team. Underwriting team checks out all the documents to make sure everything's good to go. And then finally they say, yep, we're to go. We can fund it. Send the money to escrow. Or in your case, they realize at the 11th hour, they have an internal rule that's more restricted than what Fannie Mae allows and they deny the loan. That's what happened to you with your mom. I see. Gotcha. Cool. All right. Are there any last things that we should know uh, for first-time home buyers? Let's talk a little bit about mortgage-backed securities. Oh, yeah. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit. That, first, we're going to do a metaphor. If you're selling cake, you're selling cakes, birthday cakes, Christmas cakes, wedding cakes, doesn't matter. You're selling cake. The ideal cake is going to have a ratio of cake to frosting to topping to decoration. And that ideal balance is going to be what, is going to be what lets you sell cake for the highest price and get the most five-star reviews online. You agree with me so far? Yep. So modeling that ideal cake. And if you are a cake maker, you might be fine-tuning that over time. Maybe tastes change. 
And now maybe a lot of frosting isn't what the market wants. Maybe now the market wants less frosting, right? So you change your cake to make it sell for the most you can give it to sell for. Mortgage-backed securities are the same thing. So your ideal mortgage-backed security will change over time, but it will be this many percentage of loans that are Fannie Mae conforming, this many that are FHA, this many that are high balance, this many that are cash out, this many that are first-time home buyers, this many at 10% equity, this many at 20% equity, this many at this FICO score bracket. That they have the sliced up 50 ways from Sunday. And Wall Street has different appetites for what they want, and it changes over time. So what would you do if you were a lender and you were 900 mortgages into a mortgage-backed security and you didn't have enough of one type of loan? Make more? I have no idea. Well, you can't just make more because you don't necessarily control who calls you or what, you know, that sort of thing. So what you, what you would do is you, for that type of loan you don't have enough of, you would lower the interest rate and improve the pricing because it, it's not a matter whether or not you make money on that one $500,000 loan. What we're talking about here is the $100 million mortgage-backed security and whether it sells for $100 million or $105 million, right? Mm. When the stakes are that big, you don't care about a quarter to rate or an eighth to rate. It just doesn't matter because you, you have bigger fish to fry. You have bigger things at stake. So a lot of what we're doing when we're you know, shopping a loan around is we're looking, we're plugging into who's, who's desperate for that type of loan right now, right? Because someone out there didn't do enough of that type of loan and they need to get that, they need to get those loans done to close up their mortgage-backed security. The inverse is also true. When I was a direct lender, what really sucked is when we had too much of a type of loan and they, you know, the secondary marketing people increased the rates and increased the pricing on that type of loan so we'd do less of it. But I was a W-2 employee of that mortgage bank. I couldn't broker the loan. I had to offer that and I didn't have a choice. That sucked. And that was part of why I made the switch. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times with an independent mortgage broker, what you're doing is getting plugged into whoever is pushing that type of loan because they need to fill out the last last bit of their mortgage-backed security. And so basically what that means is you're able to find those really good deals because you know who wants that filled, right? Yeah, and that's that's a lot of it is that, you know, different like so this week, whoever's in, you know, first place for high balance, cash out refinance, whatever, it's gonna be someone different next week. It changes all the time. And all we're doing is plugging into whoever's, you know, doing what we need for that. That's interesting. Yeah, I never think about it like that. Because I don't even know how interest rates are determined. You know, you hear about uh the Fed is increasing interest rates or they're lowering interest rates and everyone's scared, but then you hear someone else saying that yes, but this has nothing to do with your mortgage interest rates, yeah, right. These two things are not, you know, together. Yeah. So the federal government does not directly set mortgage interest rates. The private sector does. I mean, what that is mostly based on is what mortgage-backed securities are buying and selling for. And the way to think about it is supply and demand. Econ 101. You got the supply curve, the demand curve, blah 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 blah. Um, long story short, the price of money is not measured in money; it's measured in an interest rate. Okay. So the suppliers of mortgage money, if they have more money because everyone's buying mortgage-backed securities, they can lower their rates because there's, they're just flush with cash, right? And so lately, uh, since November 2016, President Trump's tweets have been a stronger predictor for what mortgage rates will do than the federal funds rate that you're talking about. So if you want to know what rates are doing, look at whatever Trump is tweeting about. If, if he's tweeting about war and famine and trade wars and all that, what happens is people on Wall Street get scared. So they sell their higher risk, higher return stocks, and they buy nice, safe things like mortgage-backed securities. So when Trump's tweeting about war and death and famine and all this, that usually actually lowers interest rates. And when the inverse is true, when the economy is great, when we're happy, when everything's fantastic and we're making America great again, the inverse happens. People on Wall Street get excited. So they sell their mortgage-backed securities and they buy higher-risk, higher-return investment vehicles like mutual funds or stocks. Does that make sense? That's so interesting. <laughs> so usually everyone knows when the Fed's going to raise rates ahead of time, right? Or lower it. It's in the news. Fed expected to lower rates, right? Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? We're not the only ones that see that. Everyone on Wall Street sees that too. So usually what happens is before the Fed announces that rates are dropping, mortgage rates already drop. And then what happens is they actually, sometimes they drop too far. And then when the Fed actually makes that announcement, Wall Street pulls back and rates actually go up on the same morning, the Fed announces that rates are going down. So the relationship is not one-to-one and it's not very strong. Gotcha. Cool. 
All right, Chris, is there anything else you think that we should know as a first time home buyers? A lot of people in California were not born in California. So a lot of them have never heard of California's Proposition 13 that was passed in 1978. Have you? Of course I have. I love Prop 13. <laughs> but you can go ahead and explain it. So cool. So one thing that is very unique to California is Proposition 13, not the one that's on the ballot this year. That Proposition 13 of this year has nothing to do with the Proposition 13 1978. Proposition 13 1978 basically sets your property tax bill at a fixed relationship with your purchase price, and it can only go up 2% per year, even if your house appreciates 7%, 8%, 10%. Over time, that gap becomes ridiculously large, such to the point that I have a family member who owned a $1.2 million duplex, and her, my grandma, her property tax bill was $1,400 a year. Nice. So not, not a month, a year. Um, there was another example, and you can pass that down to your kids. So I, for a gentleman that lives in Delaware, he inherited two free and clear properties in San Diego. Both didn't have mortgages, and the annual property tax bill for each of those properties was about $2,000. He was getting $4,000 a month in rent, but his only payment was $2,000 a year in property taxes per property. So Prop 13 is phenomenal. It gives tax incentives to long-term real estate ownership, and it can be passed on to your children in most cases. And it is very controversial, but for someone thinking of buying a house, it is something to think about, that your property tax bill is only going to go up 2% a year, even if your house appreciates 10%. So think about Okay, if my property tax bill only goes up 2% per year, my mortgage is a 30-year fixed. My homeowner's insurance, that might change a little bit, but that's a very small part of the pie. Basically, in California, because of Proposition 13, relative to inflation, you have a fixed housing cost as a homeowner. By contrast, as a renter, your rent goes up every year. So what will generally happen was when you first buy a house, generally speaking, your monthly payment will be higher, but it's not going to keep going up from there. Whereas when you rent, it might start lower, but every single year you're going to get a notice of rent increase that's going to be at or above inflation. In California, we have statewide rent control. So now, if I remember correctly, your rent increase can be the consumer price index plus 5%, which is generally more than what your property tax would go up by. That's right. I bought a property for my mom and I have Prop 13, so I inherited her property taxes. And even though if you bought this property, it should have shot up to like $10,000 a year, I only pay like 4000 a year. Which probably means that property that's inherited from family might be cash flow positive as a rental, but would never be cash flow positive to someone who bought it at fair market value and got that fair market property tax assessment at that sales price. Correct. Yeah, it's a little unfair advantage. And of course, there's some talk about split role, but this is a different topic for a you know different time. Every single election season, I talk about repealing Prop 13, and since 1978, it hasn't happened. It doesn't mean it's not going to happen this year. Someone could rub it in my face and say, ha ha, Chris, you're an idiot. We proved you wrong. But so far, it hasn't happened. And the reality is, every homeowner in California benefits from, Pro- from Proposition 13, so you're going to have to get a majority of them to agree to change it. That's right. I mean, I think they're starting to go with, they're trying to repeal it from these bigger corporations, you know, large commercial structures, and then see how it goes there. That wouldn't surprise me if that happened. Yeah, the split role thing. Yeah. All right. Very nice. Is there anything else you'd like to discuss before we end the show today? I think those are most of the big ones. Usually the first step in buying a house is talking to a mortgage loan originator to get you pre-approved and get you out there house hunting. So I'll be around if that's needed. Perfect. So Chris, how can people get in contact with you? Sure. So my website is eastbaysmortgagebroker.com. I lend throughout all California, but it's eastbays with an S-B-A-Y-S, eastbaysmortgagebroker.com. Instagram is eastbaysmortgagebroker. My phone number is 415-846-9211. My name is Chris Mason. My NMLS number is 1220177. And my Department of Real Estate number is 02080854. You're able to originate loans all over the United States, you said? No, no, California only. California only. All over California. All over California. So at this point, even though my marketing is all East Bay's mortgage broker, like a third of my production is LA and San Diego. I don't know why, but whatever. Phone calls come in, I'll take it. It's because you're a bigger pocket celebrity. That's why. That could very well be it. I actually had my first person asked to take a selfie with me at that event we were at last weekend. You're famous. That's a very low level version of famous, but thank you. (laughs) 
<laughs> Very nice. All right, Chris. Well, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure having you on the show. All right, cool, Sean. Have a great day. And um, yeah, let me know when this goes live. Absolutely. Take care. Here are some of the key takeaways from this episode. Getting a loan for your first property can be tricky, so make sure you're working with the right team members. Using a mortgage broker can help you find the best deal because they have access to many programs that will cater to your personal needs. And before you go out shopping for a house, try to take care of your existing debt. Having a car payment or student loans could dramatically reduce your purchasing power. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. If you live in the Bay Area, join our meetup group where we meet up twice a month in San Jose at meetup.com slash everythingrei. And if you thought this was a great episode, let me know what your key takeaway was and share it with a friend who's interested in real estate investing. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It will only take a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks and have a great day.